Seltzer Kings podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextopede, you're alive again. <gasps> How I've missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? <laughs> Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. I don't see where you get off making fun of 8-tracks, Gavin. They've got cars in Britain that are smaller than 8-track tapes. Ass. The following podcast contains... Ah, oh, the f*** you do that for? Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your tape player makes a big kerchunk every four minutes, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this episode number 364, the Too Damn Cool to Buy the 8-Track Tapes edition of the show, where we talk about the worst media format ever created, the 8-Track Tape. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Welltron 2001 Spaceball Radio 8-Track Tape Player. The future of sound technology in a ball. The Weltron 2001 radio tape player has a unique, unmistakable profile. It's the size and shape of a bowling ball with a spaceman-like face and carrying handle on the top. It's like an astronaut that plays your ABBA tapes. This space-age form factor provides all the style and none of the sound quality you've come to expect from American manufacturing. The Weltron 2001 Space Ball. The worst way to play the worst recording format ever invented. Radio Shack has a super half-price deal now on an 8-track car stereo tape player. Regularly $59.95, now just $29.95. You save $30 and get your choice of music wherever you drive. Put stereo 8-track players in two cars for the regular price of one. Or buy one and have enough money left over for car speakers and your first tape. Get on the road to savings now with this sale-priced realistic 8-track car stereo tape player. Only at Radio Shack, a Tandy company. I've told you before how my parents bequeathed me the Griswold family truckster of sound engineering when I was about 13 or so. You think you hate it now, but wait till you drive it. I'm, of course, referring to the coffin-sized veneered monstrosity that was the console stereo system because in the 1970s, everything sounded better with wood. Now, this console stereo had the basics, tuner, turntable, and standard for the time, the 8-track tape player. Also inside were a myriad of church music albums, those belonged to my dad, Elvis albums, those were my mom's, and a bunch of Disney Christmas albums, which I guess were technically for us kids, but I don't recall ever asking for them. And also inside was a small but eclectic collection of country music 8-track tapes, ranging from the Oak Ridge Boys, Elvira. Elvira. My heart's on fire. Elvira. 
to the Statler Brothers. To the downright risque vibes of the sexiest country band of them all, Alabama. You see, what had happened was, is my folks had upgraded to a stereo rack system. Not the top of the line Pioneer or Sony, but instead they rocked down to get Electric Avenue Montgomery Ward and bought the finest generic sound system a Monkey Ward's credit card could buy. But still, that system was actually a pretty good stereo, close to state of the art for the non audiophile generic white red parental units of the time. Tower speakers, AM FM tuner, amplifier, dual cassette deck, turntable and those cool-ass equalizers with a lot of slidey things that I used to pretend were transporter controls from Star Trek. Ready to beam up. And this was the purchase that allowed me to become the owner of the old stereo and all the museum pieces therein. You will note that that new stereo lacked one component. The old console had the 8-track tape deck. Indeed, that massive console stereo system was pretty much the only place that archaic and inefficient technology could be played anywhere around. Which was kind of strange when you think about it, because the two were probably not more than 10 years apart from each other. But in the 70s and 80s, that 10 years was way different technologically than today. I mean, back then, black and white televisions were still a thing, and color had been around for nearly 30 years. Not that I cared about the 8-track deck deck since I was 13 years old and pretty much the only thing I've used the entire stereo for was to listen to Dr. Demento on the radio. In today's aching nostalgia for analog technology, many things have got their comeback. Of late, I've been repurchasing my teens and one piece of vinyl at a time. It's really sad, man. It's a sad existence. Fuck you, I got my Phil Collins vinyl. I'm doing great. Even the cassette tape is having a minor renaissance among the kind of people who enjoy shitty audio quality and spooling up spewed out magnetic tape with a number two pencil. But you will not find a lucrative secondhand market for the eight track tape for one simple reason. They suck. Which is why they are largely forgotten by anyone who did not have a console stereo or a 65 Ford, making it just the kind of thing I could spend a half an hour telling you about. There's no need to thank me. There's no chance of that. The story of the 8-track tape begins as so many other stories do. In a Learjet. I'm in a Born in June of 1902 in Hannibal, Missouri, was a remarkable man, very much in the mold of other American inventors like Edison, though uh, with far less electrocutions. Lear began at an early age teaching himself the latest tech craze sweeping the land, the wireless radio. His early career in radio engineering and voracious interest in all things high-tech led to his first invention in 1924, the battery eliminator, a device for converting the voltage from a constant power source like a wall socket for use in a battery-powered device like a radio. If you have ever plugged your wall socket adapter into the battery compartment of, say, your uh, nine-inch vibrocock dildo that allowed it to run without the batteries, you have Bill Lear to thank for your multiple orgasms. Thank God for you. He would go on to invent other miniaturized components for radios and electronics, laying down the path for microelectronics, including the multifunction mode of your nine-inch vibrocock dildo. 
1931, Lear bought his first airplane and began the work to work in avionics for the first time. His work there led to the development of radio direction finders, autopilots, and the first fully automatic aircraft landing systems. He eventually built his own aircraft production company that he later sold to some Swiss dude in 1962. That is when Bill Lear began work on the jet that would come to bear his name and become the synonymous with the sort of conspicuous consumption that made the world such a festering shithole as it is today, the Lear Jet. The first Learjet was sold in 1963. It could carry eight passengers at 560 miles an hour and cost about $650,000 fully equipped, about $400,000 less than its competitors at the time. And what I hear you asking is, what does this have to do with the eight-track tape? Well, if you have your own private jet that cost almost $6 million in today's money, are you gonna be listening to commercial radio? No! And clear air turbulence it causes your record player to skip. So Bill Lear dreamed of an audio format perfect for his Lear Jets. Are you making all this up? Eh, maybe on the motive part, but Lear definitely more or less invented the 8-track, and every Lear Jet in their heyday had an 8-track on board. Magnetic tape for recording had been around since the late 1930s, but was limited in use because it required inconveniently large machines to use. But in 1952, the Fidelipak, or NAB cartridge, or just cart, and us radio DJ engineers parlances, was invented. And it took the tape off the reel-to-reel -reel and put it inside a plastic cartridge, which could be plugged into a player protecting the tape and simplifying its use. It was very popular in radio stations for its size, ease of use, and reliability, but it never really caught on as a commercial product and it was because it was more expensive than vinyl and didn't have the ability to hold a whole lot of tape, meaning a full LP couldn't be put on one cart. Quick aside, cart technology was the de facto standard for radio play for well over 50 years and only phased out in the late 90s and early 2000s when digital storage and computer playback finally took over. In 1962, a cat by the name of Earl Madman Muntz, who was kind of the Crazy Eddie of his day. See Crazy Eddie now, his prices are insane was selling cars and electronics. There's something about a month TV. It holds so many ways. There's something about a month TV that earns your lavish praise. And designing consumer electronics for sale in his stores. Now, Muntz knew about the Fidelipaks and had the idea that they could be improved and put in automobiles. So he designed the Stereo 4-Pack, a four-track car tape cartridge system and licensed major albums from the studios. Muntz's cartridges... Oh, come on, man. Look, that was Muntz's joke, not mine, y'all. I'm, I'm low, but I'm not that low. But said cartridges became popular enough that Columbia Records would release full albums on the format and quite the thing for rich jerk-offs to own. Frank Sinatra had one, which should tell you all you need to know about how expensive they were and the kind of people who bought them. Now, at the same time as Madman Months was releasing the four-track, the compact cassette tape was invented. The format that would in just a few years doom the four-track and its successor, the eight-track, which I promise I'm about to talk about in a minute. But I wanted you to know that if you're curious about the history of the cassette tape, you should check out episode 317 and 338 for that story. Now... Bill Lear, remember him, This we've been talking about him this whole time, was tooling around in a car with Madman Muntz one sunny day in Southern California, probably out looking for poor people to hunt and kill for sport. Slander is spoken. 
in print, it's libel. I said probably. Anyway, their maybe murder mobile had one of Muntz's tape decks in it, and that gave Bill Lear an idea. Should I steal it? To which the answer in the business world is always yes. Lear took the idea from Muntz, adapted and improved it. I mean, not Bill Lear personally, but someone who worked for Bill Lear. Richard Krause, whose name is known, but I couldn't find anything else about the guy, which is the way of things when you work for a rich idea thief. Anyway, Krause was the dude who actually created the eight-track tape and player for Learjet in 1963. The eight-track tape itself was an improvement over the cartridge. According to Wikipedia, quote, the major change was to incorporate a neoprene, rubber, and nylon pinch roller into the cartridge itself rather than to make the pinch roller part of the tape player. Reduced in mechanical complexity, Lear also eliminated some of the internal parts of the each cartridge, such as the tape tensioning system and an interlock that prevented tape slippage. By doubling the number of tracks from four to eight, the length of the recording doubled to 80 minutes, unquote. What Lear ended up with was a continuous loop tape and tape player that could play full-length albums, which back then were getting longer every year, in a compact format that wouldn't skip and had good enough sound quality that you could sell it to the public. And it was in the marketing that Bill Lear excelled because his name was becoming associated with affluence and he had the ears of a lot of other rich douchebags around the country. And it was through these rich douchebags like him that he would turn the eight track tape into the standard automotive must have accessory for a decade and a half because you ain't heard Fog Hat, you've heard Fog Hat and a Ford Econoline van conversion with shag carpet and bucket seats. Oh, man, I feel like I'm back in high school making a bong out of any three random objects I found on the floorboard of the van. Bill's big idea was to get the automotive manufacturers directly involved, picturing them directly as a factory add-on rather than an aftermarket addition like the 4-track was. Ford Motor Company was the first by plunking their 8-tracks into 65 Mustangs, Thunderbirds, and Lincolns. And by 1967, every Ford model had an 8-track option, and pretty soon, all the other car makers did as well. From All Things Considered in 2011 by Stephen Becker, quote, The 8-track started as a to get attention in 1965. That's almost exactly when cassette tapes were introduced to the market. The difference is that 8-tracks were marketed to play music. Cassettes were pitched as at-home recording devices. When Ford Motor Company began to offer 8-track decks in its 1966 model cars, the format took off. It gave people mobility for their music collections, says Howard Kramer, the curatorial director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. It allowed you to say, I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to stop at the store and I'm going to buy the new Beatles record and the new George Jones record. And oh, there's a compilation of stuff on this particular label. And to be able to listen to just what you want and not twist around the AM dial trying to find music, unquote. The New York Times wrote in 1976, quote, a consumer can spend as little as $30 or as much as $225 for a tape player alone, with the cost of speakers and installation pushing the total quite a bit higher. For factory-installed equipment on a new car, prices range from $75 to $375. So demand seems to be highest among the buyers of more expensive cars, with more costly equipment selling best, according to industry experts. For example, figures issued by Ward's Automotive Reports show that 70% of 1975 Continental Mark IVs were sold with tape equipment. The comparable total for Ford Pinto models was 13%, unquote. That same Times article went on to note that almost as soon as tape decks became common in cars, that most New York of crimes 
quickly arrived right on its heels. I'm real sorry, someone broke in and stole your tape deck. Smashing your car window to steal your tape deck. By 1976, tape decks and cars, the legit ones, not the ones stolen out of them, generated over half a billion dollars in sales in 1976 money. By the mid-70s, a car just wasn't a car unless it had an eight-track in the dash. Some of my earliest memories of cars being cool or of riding with my Uncle LB would tell me to pick out an eight-track off the ones on the boxes of them scattered around a 76 Monte Carlo, and us jamming to Frampton cruising down the Highway 411 to the liquor store across the state line in Georgia, and then being warned in whispered tones to never tell anyone what we did. So you weren't molested? No, 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 we just went to the liquor store. Though he did la have me sit on his lap and steer on the way back from the liquor store, but I'm pretty sure that was just to get out of a possible DUI charge if we got pulled over because he never got a boner or anything. Eight tracks did break some technological barriers that vinyl and cassettes never really did. That wouldn't come easily again until digital audio some 20 years later, one of which was quadraphonic sound. If you had a quad eight, man, you were cooler than cool, especially if you had one in your fuck van. Quadraphonic sound, a waterbed, and now strobe light. Quad sound was basically an early version of surround sound in which the tracks made a kind of echo effect in your rear speakers emulating a concert hall experience on your car stereo for a price, a hefty price, but still a quad stereo in your home or car and a quad eight tape could give you a surround sound effect, though an awful lot of the effect really depended on how much weed you had smoked before you slapped in Pink Floyd's Adam Hart mother. Even with all that eight track tapes Fucking sucked. The biggest beef most people had with him was their kachunk. Every fucking time the song changed, the track made that sound, and it got really annoying really quick. Because you'd be getting your groove on in the back of your fuck van, and just when Foghat's I Just Wanna Make Love To You kicks over... Into trouble, trouble, the sound, the kerchunk would just spoil the mood. And the track change sounds was just the tip of the iceberg when it come to the flaws of the 8-track. The biggest problem was inherent in the whole concept of the tape in the first place, going all the way back to the Fidela Pack and Madman Muntz's 4-track cartridges, a flaw baked right into the idea of a continuous loop tape in the first place. The tapes only went in one direction. Maybe you no, no, not the band One Direction. What I meant that it was unkind that we couldn't rewind. Meaning you, say, couldn't just listen to the song Bad Company on the album Bad Company by the band Bad Company over and over again by simply rewinding to the previous track. This is what you get for stealing jokes? Look, I didn't so much as steal that joke from last podcast on the left as more reworked it. <laughs> that wasn't all of it. Someone by the name of Yeoman Lowbrow wrote a blog post. Yeah, I'm assuming it's a pseudonym too. On Flashback.com in 2014, detailing all the shitty things about the 8-track tape. I'll condense it here for simplicity. Quote, the primary reason the 8-track became extinct was because it was an unreliable piece of shit. 
They simply weren't built to last and subsequently earned a reputation as being ticking time bombs. Truth be told, brand new 8-tracks often sounded good, and the tapes themselves were virtually indestructible. They never melted or cracked in the sun. It was the internal components that started to fall to pieces over time. If the manufacturers hadn't opted for cheap constructions, things might have turned out differently. Owing to its problematic construction, the 8-track became notorious for becoming a tangled, wretched mess, usually in the best part of your favorite song. It was quite common for a single song on an album to fade out and fade back as it transitioned to a new track. There was no real outer decorative case, as with CDs and cassettes, just the cartridge. And so unlike the Source of Pride, which was with your record collection, the filthy 8-track collection often became a thing of shame on the floorboard of your car. If the heads became even slightly misaligned, a very common occurrence, one track would bleed through into another track. Worst case scenario, two songs at equal pitch playing at the same time. Best case, a faint background of an altogether different track. Either way, it was a thoroughly miserable listening experience, unquote. Combine that with the rise of cassette tapes, which were much cheaper, and with the first twinges of piracy coming along, Oh yeah, you, you could record 8-tracks, but the recorders were just ridiculously expensive. And 8-tracks had effectively a decade, a decade and a half of popularity before they were consigned to the console stereos of teenage boys' bedrooms. In 1978, it was the high watermark of 8-track tape sales, and they were gone from music stores by 1983. Though they hung out at Columbia House Record Clubs as lost leaders until late as late 1988. Oh, who was buying them is a mystery to me. I mean, when I put my aftermarket stereo in my 79 Toyota Celica in 1988, it was a cassette player hidden inside the glove box because I didn't want somebody to break my window and steal my cool-ass stereo system. I, uh, I wrecked that car and abandoned it about six months later. I'm not good with cars. Or women. A-tracks hung around in various forms for a few years into the CD years. They were great for the first-generation karaoke machines. Daisuke Inoue used them in 1971 in his early machines, and they hung around him well into the 80s, mostly in Japan. Damn, I, I need to do a full series on the rise of karaoke. Maybe I'll even sing a little bit for you. Um, actually, I would prefer if you didn't. The Omni Entertainment System from Milton Bradley. I think we had one of those. They used the 8-tracks as game cartridges, which included the first electronic version of the Jeopardy home game. But that, too, was gone well before CDs became common for consumer buyers, and 8-tracks were consigned literally to the garbage bins of history. And while, yes, there is a very small second-hand market for 8-tracks these days, most people didn't bother to keep them like they did their vinyl or even cassettes, because at the time, they were widely regarded as garbage as early as their Reagan inauguration. Which is ironic, because Reagan brought back so much trash and gave it a second shot at life. You just can't help yourself, can you? Nope. I'm always going to take a cheap shot at that asshole whenever I get the chance. As for Bill Lear, the 8-track was pretty much his last big thing. He sold Learjet in 67 after some unspecified financial issues. Probably the rising cost of hunting, killing poor people for sport. Dude! I said probably. And his later life inventions never really, uh, you know, took off. Really, Dave? His last dream invention was, I shit you not, a steam-powered automobile using a secret fluid that he called lyrium. What? It's a form of LSD. Well, no, it was probably some kind of Freon thing, and the project never came together, probably because Bill was on LSD when he thought of a steam-powered car. 
and Lear died in 1978. Side note, one of Bill's kids, John Lear, and I'm going to quote here from Wikipedia just because it's easy, quote, In 1987, John Lear released a press statement claiming that the U.S. government has close contacts with extraterrestrials and were secretly promoting films like E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Close Encounters of the Third Kind to influence the public to see extraterrestrials as space brothers. And in 1988, Lear authored the UFO cover-up, a short document in which Lear spun a tale involving a secret government committee, Majestic 12, making a treaty with the gray aliens only to later realize they've been deceived by said aliens, unquote. Uh, rich people. There's no big reveal here at the end. I mean, I could tell you that my parents have presented me with a big box of their old eight tracks recently, making me rethink the garbage technology like I did with vinyl, but no, that isn't the case. It's just a story about a rich white guy stealing ideas from another rich white guy and making a ton of money from a poor white guy's work that basically rested on the theft of intellectual property from the people of color who were creating the actual thing the American people wanted. You know. His journey, the story of America. It is also a story that not all analog technology is worthy of your nostalgia. There's a good argument to be made that vinyl records do have a richer sound. The tangible experience of playing them can bring back many memories of your younger days. Deseeding your pot on the covers or using the gatefold of a double LP to assist in your joint rolling. And cassettes can bring back the joy you felt making mixtapes for your friends or the sadness you felt for making a mixtape for the person you were crushing on but were way too shy to tell them. But eight tracks lack any of those charms. They were just cheap hunks of plastic that broke too easily, sounded terrible, and then took up more space than they were worth. And while that probably makes them the ultimate American consumer product, but as a musical experience, they will always be just a... As they hit the trash can of history. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That is it for our show this week. Oh, it is good to be back on our goofy shit after the heavy stuff from last week. Thanks, everyone, who put up with my rants. And thanks to all the folks for checking out the Dowers boards. We're still working out the kinks on that show, but it's all good fun. So listen or don't listen. If you don't like fun, it's all good. At least we didn't play any of the songs on A-Track for you. Speaking of disappointing listens, rate and review this show wherever you get your pod so other people can take a listen and feel that same kind of disappointment that people felt when they heard their songs bleed through one another on their eight tracks. If you want to chip in a dollar to help fund my vinyl acquisitions, you can do that on patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now, 
I want you to do all the things that Jeremy tells you to do right here at the end of the show, or he will report your new address to Columbia House Records, and you know you still owe them for those eight tracks you bought back in 79. So for me, Dave, food's on the table and the coffee's getting cold, and I haven't eaten since I don't know when. Bledsoe, producer, my eight tracks pumping out a country song, and I'm tearing down the highway again. Gavin and all the fictional rockabilly fans on the show, we want to say my eight tracks playing all your favorite songs. So come on, honey, and sing along. We'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking? Stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Max would like you to bring back 8-track tapes. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.